right, Rasim, let's start at the very beginning and let's have you introduce yourself as well as uh, Blackbird AI. Sure. Thanks a lot and thanks for having me. So uh, my name is Wasim Khaled and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Blackbird AI. Uh, and Blackbird uh, helps brands and governments automate the rapid detection of harmful disinformation campaigns that cause essentially uh, measurable financial and reputational harm. Um, we got our start in national security and are expanding to enterprise markets quite rapidly uh, today. Wow. This conversation could not be more timely. <laughs> yes, uh, it's been an interesting week for us for sure. In some ways, we've been building up to this week uh, since, we, since we spun up uh, in 2017. So let's start the conversation there. We are in election week in America, and uh, at the time at which we are recording this conversation, um, the election is not, has finally not, has not been called yet. And yet, there's been plenty of disinformation. Trump went and declared that he has won the election and so on and so forth. So um, tell us about what has specifically, what, what kinds of dis disinformation prevention have you, your company, been involved in this week? Well, you know, so the thing about um, our company is, um, you know, our primary focus is really more on the enterprise side of disinformation and um, where we do work with government agencies, um, we really don't work on uh, domestic political disinformation as there are quite a few companies kind of addressing that and taking fact checker approach to it. Um, mm -hmm. So we're a little more um, kind of, uh, we, we stay away from that at present um, for the most part. But in terms of the disinformation that has been flowing, the patterns that we see um, are kind of universal in the disinformation space, which is um, you will see uh, a story that is designed to be polarized in nature pop up in social media. Mm -hmm. And typically there will be, you know, high influencer accounts, whether they be known people or just accounts with millions of, say, bot-like followers, and they'll promote that story, amplify it, try to get it seen by as many people as possible. Also, um, you know, big success for them whoever is kind of operating such a campaign, if someone picks it up and spreads it further, the whole goal is to get seen and heard as much as possible, cut through the clutter with your narrative. Um, and I guess um, I know this is a little more high level than what you're asking. With all this information today, it's less about is this true and is this false and more about who's going to win this particular story, who's going to win their narrative, and then using techniques to try to get that seen and believed as much as possible. So we see a lot of that uh, happening today, and of course we've been seeing it uh, grow in size and impact over the last four years. So um, let me ask you, actually, you know, in a way we are starting this conversation at a 30,000-foot level. We will get to your company and what you're doing for your specific sure. clients, but since we are already on the broader topic, and, and it's so yeah. topical and so contemporary, I'd like to continue mm -hmm. that conversation a little bit and ask sure. you for some specific perspective, more as a, mm -hmm. um, perhaps as an industry observer and an expert in this industry, not necessarily what your company does. Mm -hmm. So not a here we go. Um, so one of, the, one of the things that happened this week in the context of the U.S. election is that you know, Trump has been trying to 
portray that this election has been stolen from him. And there was a very large Facebook group of, uh, that, that propagated that narrative. And, uh, um, and, and basically, uh, this group was taken down, I believe, by Facebook. So could you talk? Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? I am. Yeah. So could you, could you talk about that a little bit? Is that, you know, what happened? How did this group become so big? And, um, and what, what is your um, observation about the stance that Facebook is taking on this and other uh, misinformation and, and strange stuff like the QAnon groups and so on? Uh, yeah, um, for, for sure. Uh, so first of all, I, I believe that you're talking about um, the group that was essentially promoting, quote-unquote, boots on the ground, um, violence essentially, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Facebook, I'll start by, you know, the removal itself, right? So Facebook's got their own policy, and it primarily has always uh, taken a stance that if there is bodily harm or violence, um, being urged by any of the people within a group or on public posts that they're going to take some action, take it down. And so they're following that policy as they normally would, right? Um, I think one thing that was um, interesting uh, about this particular group um, is that um, they used to be um, a group that were actually spreading COVID disinformation um, earlier in the year. Right. Particularly, it's uh, something that we covered in one of our disinformation reports, um, which we called, you know, the reopen narrative, which was being mm -hmm. pushed quite a bit um, yep. about kind of reopening regardless of scientific or medical uh, information. You saw a lot of protests at Capitol buildings uh, around the country um, in front of governor's uh, offices, things of that nature. Well, I mean, it was kind of interesting to see that this Facebook group used to be a, a big proponent of that. Um, and they've kind of switched over to kind of a more uh, militant uh, kind of viewpoint. And for that reason, they, they took it down. I mean, I, I can't really comment on, on Facebook's policy and whatnot, but I mean, if there are people pushing violence in these groups uh, at scale, of course, it's, it's not a bad idea to do something about it. So, so there, I, I hear two things in what you mm -hmm. say. One is violence. Sure. So it seems like Facebook has an explicit policy to take down groups that instigate violence. Correct. Makes sense. But, you know, speaking of disinformation, speaking of harmful, you know, harmful to society information, the, the COVID misinformation is also equally dangerous. Yeah, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I suppose, complexities that I'm sure goes into the decision-making process of social platforms on where the line between freedom of speech uh, and really censorship around kind of harm to society actually lies, right? And that's going to be a, a contentious topic that pushes into um, topics around regulation of social platforms as we go forward into the next, you know, six months to a year in terms of what 
essentially they can get away with and what they're going to be held responsible for. There's a lot of talk around Section 230 that protects social platforms from, um, you know, being, for example, held responsible for the content on their platforms. Um, without that, you know, without that law, there would probably be no social platforms today. So you got to be really careful about how you tweak it. But today they're immune from anything that can happen on their platform that might cause some sort of violent event or societal harm. Right? They're immune from it as a, as a result of that law, which was passed quite a while back, that social platforms are really just the medium. They're not responsible for the messages and content on there. Uh, and I, you know, in terms of what I think about it, I certainly don't think it should just be repealed because it would hurt all companies, including small tech. It's really the big companies that can cause the most harm there. And so there has to be some sort of a, a sliding scale on, on who you apply that to, because otherwise you'll completely create a monopolistic situation where the people who had that advantage of that kind of policy um, kind of stays the incumbents and smaller companies don't even have a chance. They might get sued out of existence because of one post that someone might make, right? So one of the reasons we don't see proactive solutions being kind of spun up is because, you know, every path you take, there are a number of complexities and kind of unintended consequences that might occur as a result of the decisions you make. Um, and of course, there's a massive um, pushback, and in, in some cases, rightly so, on censorship versus freedom of speech around these topics, right? So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's almost kind of laying down policy in real time as they go forward, um, because new things come up every day that kind of shatter the old mold that they might have put down a month ago for policy, right? And people are always working to try to circumvent those rules themselves. Um, you mentioned the QAnon groups. Well, you know, Twitter took a pretty large stance on banning QAnon-like accounts. Facebook started shutting down the groups. But, you know, the very next thing you saw is, is QAnon members found ways to circumvent that through something they actually called pastel QAnon, which was, I guess you call it QAnon light, which, you know, started putting up um, pages that spread the same conspiracies, but with much lighter rhetoric nicer design, literally targeted kind of like soccer moms and things of that nature, but um, without mentioning those keywords that they're known for, right? Catchphrases that they're known for, which I'm not going to repeat here because I don't like amplifying it, but they just took another tack to spread those conspiracies, then thereby bypassing those filters, right? So again, you know, um, something that I kind of try to push to the enterprise customer, whoever I'm talking to really, is that it's, it's essentially a, a, an escalation, an arms race uh, between those that are going to create disinformation and those that are going to try to defend against it. Um, and, and that's going to, that's going to continue for uh, the foreseeable future. Right. So, um, again, there are, there's a fair amount of complexity in what we are discussing here. Um, mm -hmm. There is free speech. There are laws protecting free speech. There are laws protecting social media platforms from being held accountable for what goes on on their platforms. Fine. But social media platforms are not, um, you know, public services. They are private companies. So mm -hmm. they also have the right to formulate their own policies. They are currently, as we stand, where we sit today, 
this is not a regulated industry. So, so you know, being responsible, just like Twitter has been and Facebook has been on QAnon kind of issues, and in the latest, you know, instigating violence kinds of issues, they can take the same exact tack, and they can take the position. They, I mean, they are not protecting free speech. They, they are not. They don't have to allow all kinds of garbage being spewed around on their platforms. They can take the position that if there is something that is, you know, obviously false or obviously harmful, we're going to take that down, which is, which is the direction they're, they're taking baby steps in. But this is where, I mean, the case, the use case that you provided of QAnon-related, you know, lighter versions of QAnon, minus those uh, keywords, well, you know, a well, well-structured AI algorithm should be able to pick those things up and flag those pages, right? Uh, yes, actually. And, um, you know, that's one of the areas um, where Blackbird has is, is really been focusing for, for some time. Um, you know, and, and I think the reason quote-unquote, it might be easier for us, uh, certainly not because we have the same level of resources or engineering that the platforms do, but we, for example, are not restricted by the same types of incentives, um, you know, revenue versus, uh, you know, kind of congressional regulation. Of course, those things don't apply to us because our business is, hey, how do we detect that harmful emergent conversation or manipulation um, or, you know, kind of synthetic amplification of narratives um, you know, we talk about this all the time, really, is that, you know, companies that have almost unlimited resources, uh, if they really wanted to do it, um, you know, they, they could um, in, in some way, shape, or form, um, at least for their own platform, maybe not across multiple platforms, right? Um, that's right. a whole other discussion. But, I mean, they're not in They don't have to do it across do it. multiple platforms. As long as they keep their own houses clean, that should be Co- enough. Correct. They, they should, right? And I totally agree with you. I mean, you can kind of see the slow play that occurred um, leading up to the election here is, you know, three months before it suddenly became a big urgent topic that was more in the press, but they've had four years to prepare for things like this and other types of harmful events, and they have not reacted to it. In fact, QAnon, if it wasn't for, you know, the, the kind of people ignoring, social platforms ignoring that growth, they would have never gotten to millions of people strong across the world, right? Um, so it's right. far, I really like um, a little bit too little too late. Um, and, and, you know, unless those, those things are improved, then you'll see other potential groups like that pop up as, as, as things progress as the years go by. If you were to recommend how uh, these <laughs> industries, these large social media platforms should be rec- regulated what would you what would you suggest so i think one of the most important things is that you don't use a, a sledgehammer on the entire tech industry especially the smaller companies right the up and coming companies that would get squashed if you applied the same type of a broad stroke to the entire sector i think that would be bad which i kind of mentioned before um so really focusing in on the companies that have the biggest audiences, the most users. Um, I mean, I think everyone, including, you know, the founders of those companies are now saying, hey, there does need to be some form of regulation. Um, 
I won't say that I have the solution to it because nobody's really been able to come up with a set of things that are working, but there are a lot of bills um, kind of in play today that have variations on what a good solution might be. But, you know, one of the things are simply about, like, the, the right to amplification should not be a given. Um, so what I mean by that is you may be able to post something onto a platform, but assuming that you're going to have the, the same amplification as someone who's trying to post something or push something into that environment that isn't harmful or flaggable or uh, potentially dangerous, and then you kind of go out there and say, hey, why, were, why was I throttled? That's a, that's a problem. So everyone kind of has the right to the same type of amplification algorithm, which the companies actually determine, right? And unfortunately, the incentives around how these systems were built were around uh, increasing engagement and um, generating revenue, ad revenue. So these companies make all their money from advertising. So the whole model was built around high engagement. And in some ways, the algorithm that does that is dumb. And, and what I mean by that is it focuses on one thing. It doesn't look at societal harm. It doesn't look at the democratic process or any of that. It looks at how can I keep you glued to this screen for another one minute, right. 10 minutes, two hours. And the more right? polarizing the discussion topics, the more exactly. engaged people are. So they're incentivized. The algorithms actually are incentivized to reward yeah. polarized Old, old, old saying, right? A lie, a lie flies halfway around the world before the truth can get its pants on. Right. And so, yeah. you know, that's what that's that what that's what works. And that's what gets engagement. You know, there are many studies now that have been shown that, you know, disinformation, people just like to read about it more. Right. Because it's polarizing. And, and then people know that. In fact, one of the things we tell people is if you read something, if you read a post and it makes you really angry or really wanting to mash that share button as quickly as possible, you better take pause for a second and try to try to do a little bit of research into what you're looking at. Um, and so getting back to the question of regulation, I think there needs to be a real discussion around how, um, how things are amplified algorithmically. Yeah. The problem is the entire platform, the entire system was kind of built around this culture of how do we grow, grow, grow fast? How do we move fast and break things? And how do we get maximum engagement for maximum advertising dollars? So, in some ways, that culture is incompatible with uh, credibility. Um, you know, we as a company, and, and I myself wrote a piece a while back called, you know, the attention versus credibility. So you have this attention economy that craves engagement to drive revenue, and then you have credibility on the other side, which essentially becomes an ignored metric, right, um, in the pursuit of growth. So how do you, how do you consolidate that? Um, it's really, really hard, right, because the incentives are financially driven. Well, there is another issue that I uh, I think it's it's debatable, obviously. Everything is debatable at this point on these, you know, emerging issues. But I, I mm. personally feel that this algorithmic focus on addictive engagement is in itself a problem. Absolutely. Should that be regulated? Well, I think in the same way that, you know, online gambling was, was, was looked at, there should be, um, you know, some form of, uh, of, I suppose, at least research um, and 
limitation on being able to build kind of mathematically systems um, that are designed to addict you, especially when you talk about like younger children, right? Yeah. Who, you know, I mean, look, I'm a parent and, you know, I try to rarely put my child in front of a screen, right? Because I know the way those things are designed. But the, you know, in the times that you ever do that, you see that it works and there's a reason it works. The whole thing is built to kind of turn off all your functions and yeah. just zone you in, right? Works Absolutely. at the youngest of ages all and the way to the oldest. And it's one of the most popular babysitting uh, techniques around <laughs> is take right. the child in front of a device. Right. And uh, it's funny because people in the Silicon Valley tech industry who work on these products, they do not give these devices or games to or any, these, any of them. Including right? Steve Jobs, who never right? gave his devices right. to his children. That's, that's, that's right, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's um, entire teams that have worked on kind of, uh, you know, gambling and uh, understanding the psychology of gambling um, and addiction who work at these companies to increase its stickiness and increase its addictive properties, right? Um, right. And th- that's why we really find ourselves in the, in the kind of disinformation space that we find ourselves kind of immersed in today because yeah. all of these systems that we have self-subscribed to today, you know, um, and that's what it is. Like people self-subscribe to, you know, propagandist, um, you know, channels because they put out content that is sticky and engaging and, and, you, and you just have to click on one and look at one and it kind of draws you in and then starts upping the extreme nature of that content. That's how the algorithm right. wasn't designed to do that, but that's where it kind of worked itself into is, you know, you kind of, it's, yep. it's like that first taste and it gets you more and more extreme fast because they know it's going to engage. And we've seen a lot of people radicalized um, as a as the nature of like I say a YouTube algorithm, right? Um, yeah. I think of I think of the New Zealand shooter, for example, Christchurch shooter, as an example of that, right? Pretty much uh, a radicalized by algorithms, right? There was no one at the top there making those decisions, um, and that's just how it ended up. Yes, yes, and uh, you know I think the the parallel is the whole um, cigarette smoking is injurious to health that the tobacco industry had to agree to and, and gradually society came to understand the harmful effects and there were fewer and fewer places, public places where you could smoke and so on and so forth. Um, an equivalent evaluation and understanding and, and um, you know, rejection of this kind of addiction needs to happen, but I guess it's a little too too young an industry, uh, you know, the smartphone came out in 2007, Facebook came in 2004, so it hasn't been very long. It's only been like, you know, a dozen years of, or maybe even a decade worth of real addiction that we have seen, and there isn't enough evidence, there isn't not enough research analysis to come to any conclusive um, data on, on how injurious or how dangerous any of this is. Of course, in, right now we are starting to see the ill effects of destroying democracies and stuff in the political process. The harm is being felt more broadly 
and more um, more readily. But it's a it is a relatively new industry and it's a relatively new problem. So we kind of need to get our arms around it in a in a relatively new and unique way, including you know algorithms need to get reviewed and algorithms need to be designed in ways where the objective is not, you know, getting people addicted. Yeah, and, and, you know, kind of going back to this whole, to your point, going back to this whole attention versus credibility, right, and, and kind of putting out you know, responsible AI, um, you know, the whole area that's kind of spinning up called responsible AI that's going to be yeah. holding kind of sure. technology companies. That, that's a big piece of the regulation I didn't mention before is this, this notion of responsible algorithms, kind of baking yeah. that into the, the, the requirement is, is critical, right? But again, that, that whole attention and credibility, these philosophies are kind of diametrically opposed, right? Um, yeah. And so it is really the basis for, for what's happening in, in the space that we see. And if you kind of think about where media was once kind of like a baseline landscape for the formulation of opinions and ideas. And uh, you had these moderators, reporters and editors that, that really kind of cleaned up the junk before it got right. out to the general public. They filtered right. it, right? Um, right? Better for worse, right? Depending on, you know, which news org, which country, right? Um, but um, today we have a system that is peer-to-peer, on social media, where all of those um, human editors and moderators for the most part have been taken out. You see people like Facebook and Twitter kind of flopping between algorithms and humans, algorithms and humans to try to, to get it right. Um, but, you know, at the scale and speed, um, it's very difficult to do it right. And it's one of the yeah, areas yeah. that we really focus I think the scale the is a big yeah. issue. You know, mm-hmm. we had, when we had... Cr- a credibility check and an editorial process, media produced stuff that had to go through a much bigger level of due diligence. That doesn't, that's not to say that there wasn't problems in that model as well. I mean, Fox News is a very good example. Um, Fox News is very willing to amplify a lot of garbage that comes out of the right wing, um, you know, point of view so there is you know it's obviously got a completely different philosophical basis and they're willing to propagate a different style of information but it's still edited and it's still managed whereas Mm -hmm. the scale at which things are happening on the large social media platforms because it's user generated content at scale that is very, very difficult to manage. User-generated content at scale, and they're completely immune from the blowback. You know, that's Fox right. News or CNN are not, right? They're still an entity that's known, and they'll be held responsible by the, you know, FCC or by the audiences, etc. Right. right? They've got shareholder value, so they have to watch what they do to some extent, right? Um, yeah. But, but, yeah. There's so no accountability in this case. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, and, and there is another looming threat, which is, which I find to be, I don't even know how, how this can be managed or mitigated, is when you can edit videos and you can, you can get basically on video to get, let's say, Barack Obama to say Trump, Donald Trump is the greatest president America has ever had. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just taking a very extreme example, but... Right. But when you can do that technically, 
the the level of you know now comes your question of credibility versus um, engagement. There could be very credible supporting material on things that are very dubious. Right, and you know now you're kind of getting into you know some of the topics where and if I really look at you know high level where this space is going, or I shouldn't say this space, but this, this, uh, this battle between disinformation and information integrity, right? Um, deep fake, what you're talking about here, manipulated video or even yeah. kind of edited video is one component of it. Yeah. But the, the way we see this going um, and, and in the next five years, right? Um, if you think back to 2016, disinformation didn't pop out of thin air. Um, it's been around for a very long time, since as long as the printing press has been around, and even before, really, the rumors um, and, and gossip turned into something else, right? Right. But the, the vehicles of propagation and amplification didn't exist to this degree. Co- correct. Correct, for sure. And, and so, but, but, you know, if you look back to, you know, Soviet Union, right? I mean, they really yeah, yeah. Sure. figured out propaganda. how to weaponize. Yeah, they, they figured out how to weaponize propaganda and disinformation, and yes, they wielded it in, in using these new tools. Um, more recently, social media, and again, self-subscribing to propaganda. It's the perfect system um, when you have like polarized groups to really right. drill in on that. But yep. I want you to kind of think about this um, and, and consider where that might be going. Right. So today it's already pretty bad. Like we can see this week in particular, it's really, really bad in terms of how many narratives that are coming out that, you know, are all saying opposing um, stories about the same topic. Um, And that's kind of the goal. The goal of, you know, disinformation is to do one of two things. One, it's to have the audience whether that's society at large or uh, an audience for a company, to have them either like tune out, right? Because they just can't make sense of it anymore. They can't tolerate it anymore, right? And so they tune out. They don't participate anymore. That's a success unto itself, right? Mm -hmm. For the people who are waging that that war, right? But the second piece is, you know, just they end up falling into one particular rabbit hole. And then you do get kind of drawn into that particular group, Right, or you get radicalized, or you 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 know kind of flow into those ideas. But the problem is, today these campaigns kind of work like creative agencies, right? They work like creative agencies in that you got you need a bunch of people. They're writing themselves posts, then they're using some like bot-like scripts potentially to amplify their messaging. They might be a couple of people operating 100,000 accounts, or it might actually be a purely scripted bot spreading that information. These are some of the things that Blackbird looks at to try to detect and understand manipulation. Um, and the reason you have to use artificial intelligence and sophisticated technology for this is the direction in which it's going is leaving that kind of um, you know, disinformation as a service where you, you're working as a creative agency to build these stories and heading towards AI-driven automated propaganda, which is, this is really where we're heading. It could be in the next five years where you can imagine that someone who during a critical world event, consider an election or COVID, um, enters some keywords into a system. And that system generates a thousand articles 
written yeah. in machine language. Absolutely. Both sides of the narrative. Maybe a yeah. couple of hundred images and memes, auto-generated memes that are propagandist in nature that are known to have worked before with different themes. Yeah. Maybe 50, 60 videos that are deep fake with the people that need to be in it, right, to yeah. push a point, script dropped in their mouth. And yeah. then the moment those are processed and done, which maybe will take five to 10 to 20 minutes, right, then be automatically spread through every single channel through accounts that are acting as influencers, perhaps accounts that are acting as duplicative news organizations, or they're operating under deep fake profile images that um, claim to be a journalist, and then spreading that throughout the network to targeted individuals across multiple viewpoints of the same story. This really happened. This didn't happen. Maybe somewhere in the middle. And you can do that at scale, and you can do it every day, 24-7, right? Uh, unfortunately, and nobody likes it when I talk about this particular topic, that's, that's where we could be heading, which would basically render the entire information space across the world somewhat uh, non-functional. Tenuous, you know? yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and so that's our biggest concern. And, and years ago, a couple of years back when we started the company, um, that was our biggest concern. And to get things in place that could battle that kind of a world um, is, is top of mind for us because that's not a world really anybody's going to want to live in. No. So let's get down to what you are doing. Um, let's get down to what you're doing now and perhaps also what your vision is for how do you deal with that world that you're describing, uh, <laughs> rather a dystopian <laughs> world. Yes. Um, uh, so today, if you, if one of your clients, a brand, let's start with a brand, just a mm-hmm. slightly more benign situation, right. not at all benign for when you're on the receiving end of such problems, but mm-hmm. l- let's say a competitor creates a deep fake, um, you know, image or video or whatever um, that really damages the brand. What what does your technology do in such scenarios? Sure. Um, you know, the example that you use um, is not as common as other types of scenarios we've seen. Um, you know, I mean, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of speak to this first. And the key thing is, first of all, you have, to, you have to gauge three key areas that we focus on, right? First, you have to understand what is the conversation or what is the – what, what is, what's going on today for that company, right, or for that particular brand, let's say? In other words, where are my battles today? That, that's what we have to tell them first. So what are people chattering about, right? And that, in this case, what you mentioned, they may be chattering about this image, right, or more typically it might be a video, right, comes out mm-hmm. saying something against their industry, okay? Um, so, so what's being said first? And the second piece is, you know, what's driving that? Like, who are the key influencers? What are the narratives that are or hashtag hijacking, perhaps? What's driving it? Are, are bots driving it? Are, are people driving it, right? Mm-hmm. Like, the difference between synthetic and kind of organic discourse, human discourse, right? That's key because otherwise, if you end up reacting to something that the adversary wants you to react to because it was a group of bots and you thought it was an upset audience, you have a problem. Right. Um, And then then the third thing we really look at is then what is the impact to us as a company, let's say, 
right? Um, and impact, I would have to say there's quite a few measures that we look at for impact, but as an example, if there is a large group of people that are spreading a narrative about a company that's rapidly increasing in velocity, but we detect um, you know, anomalous properties in that network that indicate that it's a, it's a bot network or some nefarious group trying to push that story through uh, a social platform or something, those mm-hmm. are the kind of things we would try to identify as early as possible to be able to get them to handle that narrative in a more uh, informed way. So it's about critical decision-making enhancement, about augmenting their analysts um, and the people who are kind of guarding the brand, whether it's in reputation um, or in brand management. um, And we're seeing those spin up more and more often as companies understand that disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation are things that really are very much um, a an issue for them today that can cause uh, significant harm, right? Um, and, you know, we tell our customers that, you know, you need to think about this as a cybersecurity problem, essentially, right? Yeah. Um, it, and it's a cyber attack on perception. And most people don't even realize they're being hacked, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are the things we really look at. And, and, and is this is notion of synthetic discourse, um, you know, are there Internet trolls or fringe activists um, kind of driving that story um, in, in a way that might harm them? So two questions based on what you mm-hmm. said. Number one is how prevalent is this kind of cyber attack on the brand uh, today? It is surprisingly very, very high, and I say surprisingly because it's, it's amazing that a lot of a lot of the organizations have not fully even understood the, the 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 impact that it has on them because they don't have methods to actually detect these types of attacks. Right. right? So these things are happening all the time, and the systems that they use today are so antiquated, right, that they can't really look past like high volume right or you know kind of sentiment that's like good or bad happy sad the, the, the simplest of you know kind of sentiment analysis right base ai and you know engagement so now we're looking again at that stickiness metric that social platforms look at to gauge success right which is when i say engagement it's real simple it's just likes plus shares plus comments plus reactions and that's a number yep. that they look at as a metric right well here's the yep. problem they use that metric as a proxy for harm and that can be very easily gamed by the types of threat actors we see every day, right? I mean, one example I can give you, can't give you the company name, but it's a pharmaceutical company, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Working on a COVID vaccine. And uh, one of the biggest concerns there across the board is that, you know, there are many groups that would, rather have people not take a COVID vaccine. And a recent study said one in three Americans won't take the vaccine, even if it was available now, right? Mm -hmm. And the reasons differ, but the pharmaceutical companies, as well as the World Health Organization and the CDC, are not uh, very uh, very comfortable with that that research. And you have anti-vax groups, you've got QAnon groups, you've got 
people who spew all sorts of conspiracies around COVID. One of the biggest ones is that if we take the COVID vaccine, we're going to get chipped and the government's going to track us everywhere we go. You know, and people say this, you know, on social media from a cell phone with two high resolution cameras, a networked microphone and a GPS, and they're scared of getting tracked with a vaccine. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so those are the kind of things that companies like, you know, say a pharma company has to understand. Like if I, as a company, push out a COVID vaccine, how am I going to be under attack? How is my reputation going to be under attack? How, are, how is our CEO, our executive team or our head scientist going to be under attack online and then not just online, but potentially physically? And of mm-hmm. course, at the broader level, um, if someone puts out a conspiracy that this company is working to nefarious ends, then, you know, you have another major problem where people may not accept that vaccine because it was created by you, right? Then you have your shareholder and kind of publicly traded price to worry about, right? I'm at a a wider level. This is a bigger societal problem, and you can pull in nation-state enemies. So, for example, the CCP um, may not want Americans to take a vaccine because then, you know, will end up staying in a closed lockdown fashion and economically shrinking over a longer period of time. So you may see nation states come in and try to spread those conspiracies further and faster so that less people take vaccines. So now the company is not only under attack from, say, NGOs or activists who are against big pharma, right, but also from nation states who want to see, um, say, the virus last longer. Right. And so you see this kind of melding between nation state disinformation, NGO and activist disinformation and campaigns and, say, disgruntled workers who may have you know, been affected by the opioid crisis in pharma. You could, you could get attacked from all fronts as a company today. Right. I use mm-hmm. pharma as an example because it's an easier one, but there are mm-hmm. far more nuanced and unusual ones that come up on a regular basis that you'd never think. Uh, a company like this would be under attack from disinformation, but there it is. And, and, you know, Wayfair is a great example. If you recall what happened there, Um, I don't know if you you followed that or saw that at all. No, I haven't followed that. Okay, so, I mean, we're familiar with Wayfair, which is like, you know, mostly online furniture sales, right? Yeah, pretty Um, harmless. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, pretty harmless. So this, this particular conspiracy spun up overnight. Okay, in, uh, in, in message boards, kind of 4chan, 8chan, some of these types of message boards, pretty bad stuff over there. But um, the conspiracy spun out of kind of the Pizzagate QAnon uh, groups who have some pretty wild beliefs um, and uh, really don't want to echo them all here today. But the, the, the gist of the story was that Wayfair are trafficking children on their website with code names on expensive cabinets, okay? Steel cabinets that were like $10,000, $12,000 that ha- happened to have female names, okay? They convinced a bunch of people with some complex videos and walkthroughs and some backwards logic that Wayfair was trafficking people. Hey, and this thing went nice. viral. This thing mm-hmm. went viral all over the internet. QAnon started, people started picking it up, um, and, and it just went like wildfire. And I can only imagine what, uh, what the groups at Wayfair made of this. 
Um, and, and to be honest, there are systems that you could have in place that would let you see this kind of thing early as possible. So you mm-hmm. can address it. Uh, a big piece of what we do, for example, is really about how can you detect these problems faster so that yeah. you can address them without being on your, on your heels, right? Yeah, you take a uh, cybersecurity a prevention, early detection kind of approach to it is what I'm gathering, yeah? Absolutely. I mean, in 2021, if this isn't on the radar of every single CISO in every single Fortune 500 company, they're going to have a rude, rude awakening one day. And then maybe they'll divert more and more dollars to it, but they'll have gotten hit first. So as an example, you spend hundreds of millions of dollars on cybersecurity at Fortune 500 companies, right? Now, you tell me, okay, why would you as an adversary spend countless dollars and man hours trying to hack into a well-protected cybersecurity infrastructure to say, find sensitive documentation um, or leak certain information about your clients, well, you can just make it all up and have it go viral. It doesn't, you don't need to hack into systems anymore to hit people. You can just make it up, right? Mm-hmm. And those are the kind of things they have to be watching out for in parallel to traditional cybersecurity and intrusion. Um, is just people building scenarios that can harm you that don't even exist, right? Um, that's something that we're going to see trending a lot over the next several years. And what is the level of awareness in the CISOs on this topic? Um, increasing, right? Um, definitely increasing. Um, and we see some bigger companies Fortune 10, Fortune 20, that are very aware of it. Some of those companies have been talking to us since last May, right? So mm-hmm. those, those guys know what they're doing. They're at the, the highest kind of level of threat and, and also have the budgets, right? Yeah. Um, but what we're seeing now is that starting to, to go much wider, right? You see, for example, investors adding disinformation to their cybersecurity investment thesis, for example. You see organizations, um, you know, that have reached out to us um, and and started pulling us into reports that they're pushing out to CISOs to get them aware that these are problems they need to be focusing on. So, you know, I would say it's so much more advanced than it was two, three years ago when the things that we were saying were kind of falling on deaf ears. Um, But today, um, it's, a, it's a whole different world, even for us when we're out in the market, where people are like, oh, well, yeah, uh, yeah, either, of course, we need this, we've already been hit, or, wow, that, that, sounds, that sounds potentially threatening, you know, tell us more. So that's kind oh. of what we're seeing. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. on the rise, right? Um, but I, I would imagine that for us, especially three years ago, it kind of felt like what people in the cybersecurity space like a Cisco or something, must have felt like in the earliest, earliest days before people really needed, um, before people knew they needed to protect their networks, right? But today it's, it's uh, kind of table stakes. That, that's where I see this going. Now, what do you do? If you are a, um, a company that is hit by a problem mm-hmm. like this, misinformation problem like this, how do you deal with it? What are you seeing mm-hmm. in how people are dealing with it? Well, um, you know, this is probably the most frequently asked uh, question, right? Um, you know, for, for anyone I talk to for any amount of time about this. So 
there are a couple of different ways to deal with these. I don't go into too much detail here on this because the more detail we go into, the more easily someone can reverse engineer some of the, the methods we use to kind of unwind and countermeasure, right? But I will say this. Um, there is a kind of set process in the crisis management and even you know, crisis comms and public relations space that these Fortune 50s and Fortune 100s work with that, that, that have, um, you know, kind of team and human-connected uh, uh, methodology to mm -hmm. address these things in the media um, and countermeasure them in pretty proactive ways. I mean, these are not small companies. I mean, if they're contracting, say, a crisis comms company that, you know, some of which we work with, they might have a team of 20 to 30 people 24-7 working on one customer, right? Mm -hmm. So for us today, in 2020 as we stand, Blackbird is a company that uses, you know, essentially sophisticated AI technology to help measure in a way that no one can today, right? These hidden signals that identify disinformation or harmful emergent conversations or attacks, how do we measure that better than anyone else can today? Our countermeasure methods, which are actually going to be released probably around Q2 or Q3 of next year, um, are still under wraps today, but I will say that they're automated countermeasures that are more push-button versus mm -hmm. having to do this large kind of manual team-driven process. It's not completely devoid of humans, though, right? There's, right now, we're always going to need to have some people in the loop, but perhaps you can cut that amount significantly, or more importantly, cut the amount of time it'll take to address these, uh, these issues, right? And, and the mm -hmm. one thing I would say is, is addressing the issue is not about you know, deleting it from social media. That's not going to happen because that's the platform's purview and that's not what they do. You have to address it outside of that solution. You can't unwind it once it's already out and in that ecosystem. But there must be also a way for those platforms to receive input. If your system, for example, has detected some major misinformation campaign that is being amplified in a particular platform, there must be a way of informing that platform is like, hey, this is happening, this is the evidence we have collected, you should stop this from propagating. That's the responsible, you know, good citizen way of dealing with it, no? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, the platforms are definitely on our radar as, as future partners. Um, in fact, um, just this Monday, um, Blackbird released a report, which is on our website um, at blackbird.ai, um, called uh, Man-Machine Intelligence System for Scalable Identification of Hoaxes and Misinformation. And mm -hmm. what this report is, is a collaboration with a company called NewsGuard. Um, mm -hmm. And it's a way to take, you know, AI and small human teams to provide like a high integrity assessment of hoax content at scale in a manner mm -hmm. that can essentially keep up with the rapid spread of hoaxes and conspiracies across platforms. And we had some great results on, you know, evaluating the effectiveness in, in, in tracking the spread of disinformation um, on networks like this or detecting when a hoax starts to mutate, which is also very uh, kind of complex and something that, you know, we feel will be an excellent addition to, you know, social platforms, um, you know, moderation tools. Um, and it has a win-win-win a, a effect in that, 
you know, one, the social platforms don't have to take the bare brunt of that responsibility themselves. We can take that off them as a trusted third partner, mm-hmm. uh, third party partner, right? Um, and, and then you have, okay, awesome, awesome societal impact um, is great because less people exposed to those harmful campaigns. But then the third thing, which people don't think about a lot, is it reduces the amount of, uh, of stress um, on the moderators who have to typically see massive amounts of harmful content. Uh, and, and you probably saw that, that story um, printed uh, last year on just how many of, of uh, Facebook's um, and YouTube's um, moderators end up with PTSD and, and, and right. all kinds of disorders from having right. to deal with it. Right. Yeah. So I think um, I think uh, that's that's a direction that, you know, we'd like to go in as a company, although today, you know, our, our focus is really on on the on the Fortune 500 kind of brands and, and things of that nature, um, as well as, you know, work we do um, in the national security space. So, um, you know, I I was reading a book. Um, I'm still reading it. I haven't finished. Uh, is Jean Tiro's. Uh, economics for common good. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with this work. Jean Tirole won the Nobel Prize for economics. Um, he's an MIT economist. He works out of uh, Toulouse. Um, mm-hmm. He's a French uh, economist. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing he stresses on greatly is, you know, in this tenuous relationship between economics and politics, one of the essential Party parties is the um, are the independent institutions like the NATOs and the United Nations and the WHOs and so forth, who are not politically driven organizations, but have the independent responsibility of managing global cooperation and and so on and so forth, kind of maintaining sanity across the world. On, on any number of major topics. There could be a similar organization that is staffed, that may be founded in some foreseeable future and, or later, um, that is in charge of misinformation and protecting the world from misinformation. And then you could be supplying the technology for doing that kind of stuff where, you know, that organization, you could surface and you could you know, they could surface the issues and the, um, you know, the, you could be providing them with the infrastructure and the technology with which to do their job, but they also have human re- resources on their staff uh, to surface the major issues that need to be monitored and do the negotiation with the platforms and so forth. Um, that could be a scenario that the world evolves into. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because some of the partners and even clients that we've talked Hello? around things like this spinning up. At the Sorry, I, I lost you for just like 30 seconds. If you could just repeat. Oh, can, you, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. Yeah, so uh, what I was saying is that with some of the customers, clients, or partners that we're talking to now, we're starting to see the early discussions around these, uh, not very developed yet, to be honest, but, um, you know, I think what we're seeing is kind of smaller versions of that in silos today, 
like yeah. there's an independent um, Facebook oversight committee that was started by some of the people we've worked with in the past from um, the great hack, David Carroll, um, who was in the great hack, for example, and Carroll, um, who, who broke the Cambridge Analytica in the Guardian, right? They've kind mm-hmm. of started something called the Facebook Oversight Committee, that's advisory board that's kind of separate from Facebook. It's not affiliated with them, but they're trying yeah. to do something there. Um, you know, you see kind of documentaries come out like Social Dilemma, um, you know, and, and you have a group there. Um, I, 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 I agree that there should be almost a global organization similar to the UN or the World Health Organization that is looking at um, propaganda and disinformation globally um, and setting a standard or a baseline for what is acceptable ethics, like a Geneva Convention for Information almost, you can yeah. say, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't think we're very close to that today, but I do think that there are enough people with ideas like this out there, and you know, it's certainly something that we'll be keeping an eye out for um, to potentially align with because, you know, and this is not to belittle policy, but you, can, you, you cannot address this problem with policy or regulation alone. You need technology solutions to actually yeah. monitor, right? And, and what I mean by this, so we have some operations in Singapore, right? Um, mm-hmm. we, we, pulled a, we did a conference last year in October to kind of inform Singapore government and um, a number of organizations in Singapore who had recently passed a, a, what's called a POFMA law, kind of controversial in that they're, um, you know, kind of government mandating uh, removal of information that could potentially be harmful. Right? And Facebook has to comply with that in Singapore, things of that nature. Right? But what was immediately apparent was passing that law is one thing. Right? But how do you then decide what is you know, being amplified or what is harmful and how do you do that at scale? Right? Right. If you have like a team of people who occasionally remove a thing, this is like a, kind of like a, a PR thing more than anything else, right? right. Because you're not right. going to be able to address that problem at scale. And so, you know, we, we try to keep our eyes out for proactive um, organizations and governments that are looking at this problem, but then it has to be paired with technology that can, like I said, participate or keep up with that escalation of what is essentially an arms race around computational propaganda, which is only going to get stronger, as we talked about before. Yes, and, and I think there is one other missing piece in this. You know, um, the world that we live in and the world that we are going to you know, live in more and more is a world run by uh, technocrats. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is a technocrat. Um, he comes out of the world of programming and algorithms, and we are assuming that this is a person who's capable of making big philosophical decisions about how society should evolve and how, uh, you know, humanity should evolve. Perhaps that is, he is not quite equipped to take on that kind of a role or responsibility. So society will need to think about the philosophical implications of, you know, all these decisions that basically programmers with no philosophical understanding or study 
no rigorous philosophical background are are being asked to make. Yeah, and, and you know, in, in my kind of close, um, you know, communications and, of course, talking to technologists and people in that technology industry, um, if, if you look at the engineers themselves, so many of them are, are somewhat disillusioned because, you know, if you, if you rewind to 10, 15 years ago, um, there was a very incredibly rosy, optimistic picture of, say, Silicon Valley, right? It was you yeah. know, kind of had an elevated status in, in global uh, circles, right? This was a place of kind of um, utopian kind of understanding and, uh, and progress, right? Yeah. And that's changed so dramatically um, over the last 10 and then even over the last four years and even in the last year, recent poll that just came out yeah. said that, you know, satisfaction for Facebook engineers who are working at the company has, has dropped from something like 70% to something like 50% now, right? Just in yeah. the last year. I think it just came out this week actually. Um, and so a lot of these people who came in there uh, didn't go in there ever thinking that they would need to think about these things. They thought they were fighting the good fight, doing the good thing, right? right. Um, you know, people go to Silicon Valley thinking, I want to work on technology that's going to you know, change the world, make the world a better place, et cetera, et cetera, which almost seems kind of cliched now because you know, what ends up happening is the brightest people in the world um, end up going out there trying to create that attention engine we were talking about earlier. Right to, right to to sell more ads and get more clicks, right? Yeah, and um, I think uh, just like we we came to this, you know, age of reckoning with the financial crisis, that working in Wall mm-hmm. Street and making as much money as possible by moving money from here to there isn't really a meaningful way to live life. I think Silicon Valley is having its moment of reckoning right now. Is you know just addicting people to sell ads through algorithm is not exactly a meaningful existence, especially when the side effects of that is destroying democracy, um, addicting people and, and, you know, so on and so forth and and messing with people's mental health. So yes, I think there is, (laughs) there is a moment of reckoning going on and it it has been going on. It's been building up for a few years, but it's really coming to head now. Absolutely. And, And this, this ties back to again, like responsible AI and responsible technology in general, but you have to have a framework that brings a lot of these kind of critical practices of kind of ethics and technology together um, and, and creating a more ethical, transparent, and accountable use of these AI technologies and just, you know, any kind of these social technologies in a manner that's really consistent with, um, you know, expectations of what the user is signing up for, what they're doing, and what kind of dangers they may, might encounter. Um, yeah. And it then goes back to like organizational values and tying them to, you know, equivalence in societal law, right? I mean, I can't go up to someone and threaten someone in person. And so what is the parallel of that law in a world where we spend all our time now, right, right? communicating with others? Yep. Um, I think That's a big perfect. piece of it outside of the technology that, you know, the Blackboard works on, say, to actually identify and detect these things, you're going to see a huge uptick, we're already seeing it actually, um, but a huge uptick in better verification of your own identity uh, online so that, you know, you can't get away with spinning up these types of fake personas. It's about that accountability, even for the individual, 
right, um, and to not allow these types of actors to get on these systems and kind of wage all this chaos without it being tied to a real person. And that's, a, that's another piece of the puzzle that has to get a lot better. Yeah. Excellent. This is absolutely an excellent conversation and, and so timely. Thank you very much for reaching out, and I'm, I'm thrilled that we connected. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. I enjoyed the conversation and, and, uh, and definitely appreciate the, uh, the discussion. All right. Take care, Asim. We'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.